Welcome to Sexual Health Matters, Let's Get Clinical. We acknowledge that the land that we are recording on is the traditional land of the Ghana people, and we honour their ongoing spiritual and cultural relationship with their country. We pay respects to the Ghana elders past and present. We also extend our acknowledgement to the traditional custodians of all the lands across Australia and pay our respects to all Aboriginal elders past and present. Welcome to the Shine SA podcast, talking about contraception with Aboriginal people using a trauma-informed approach. My name is Karina and I'm a sexual health nurse, midwife and educator. And I have some guests with me today who are going to introduce themselves. They are Bianca Marks and Dr. Carly Haywood. Bianca, could you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Karina. My name is Bianca Mark. I am a Nutanjeri woman and I am the coordinator for community sector education here at Shine SA. I've been working in Aboriginal sexual health now for coming up to 10 years. Also joining us today is Dr. Carly Haywood and I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Bianca. So as Bianca said, my name is Dr. Carly Haywood. I am a GP working at the Aboriginal Family Clinic in Norlunga. I am a Warrenman woman, descended from the Matu Nation of Western Australia. So I'm very lucky to be working on Ghana land at the moment. I'm also a medical educator for GPEX, which is the GP training provider in South Australia. Thanks, Carly, and thanks, Bianca, and welcome. So the way in which this podcast has come about was that I have a long history of working with Aboriginal women as a midwife and sexual health nurse. During this time, I obviously talked to women about contraception and I've noticed some reluctance and shyness around the topic. And I've wondered whether there is anything that I need to take into account when bringing up contraception with Aboriginal women. More to the point, I've wondered whether there is a historical relationship with Aboriginal women and contraception that I need to be aware of. Carly, can you shed any light on this? So, yes, there is a historical context with Aboriginal women and contraception, and it's not necessarily always been a positive experience for Aboriginal women. If we look at some of the history, we think about, first and foremost, the stolen generation and what happened there with Aboriginal families and having their children removed. And then subsequently, some of those women underwent forced sterilisation so that then they wouldn't have any more children and they wouldn't then be a problem. And it's a way of, I suppose, ensuring that the Aboriginal race was going to slowly die out. And that was one of the aims of assimilation or then die out for Aboriginal people. And we also have stories of when Aboriginal men and women and children were forcibly removed from their land and placed onto an island in Western Australia. So Aboriginal people from different nations were all placed together in one island because non-Aboriginal people at the time perceived that Aboriginal people had syphilis or other STIs and then went through medical treatments that were unethical and had research done which was unethical and some of these people didn't even have syphilis or even have any STIs. And so there's a mistrust, I suppose, that is based on history. And when we look at the health services today, the health services are basically set up for the dominant culture, which is not the Aboriginal culture. And so it can be quite daunting to enter these places. And so when just looking at the new Royal Adelaide Hospital and how that was set up, your patient has been sent a letter and you have to go into the hospital and they have to scan the letter and then the computer will tell them where they need to go. But if English isn't your first language, then that's going to be difficult. And if you're literally 
literacy is not great, again, that's going to be difficult. So we see that these dominant health systems are not necessarily set up for Aboriginal people. Thanks, Carly. So there are lots of issues there and you talked about the historical context being a huge thing, obviously, and also services not providing appropriate facilities for Aboriginal people. So I know from my experience as a sexual health nurse that sexual health can be a very sensitive topic for all people, really. But now that we're, I suppose, expanding this conversation between us, it sounds like we've got even more barriers to work with, with Aboriginal women. In sexual health, as a sexual health nurse, when people are talking about contraception or wanting to hear about contraception, we're always quite relieved that there's something called long-acting reversible contraceptives, and we call them LARCs for short. We get quite excited about them, you know, because, for example, a marina where we can put that in for five years and it's a set and forget method and how wonderful and often they work quite well as compared to taking a pill where you have to remember it and if you don't remember it then there's a chance of becoming pregnant. So do you think that in thinking about the historical context which makes things a bit trickier where do you think long-acting reversible contraceptives sit with that Carly? Look, I agree that larks are, you know, convenient, but again, every Aboriginal woman is an individual. And so ultimately it's their decision on what they choose. So as a GP, as a clinician, we need to ensure that we are providing all the options available, assessing risks and benefits, yes, but making sure we talk about all the options available. So ultimately it's the woman's decision in the end. We know that it's convenient and with Close the Gap scheme available in PBS, the majority of Aboriginal people can get them for free. So it's free contraception for three to five years. But my number one advice would be discuss all options and provide as much information as you can, as clearly as you can without the jargon. So it ultimately is the woman's choice. Okay, so this is actually a component in our sexual health training that we look at things as something called contraceptive coercion because sometimes when you're sitting in the practitioner seat, it's hard when you have a patient sitting in front of you who you know would benefit from a particular thing. An example might be a young person whose life's in chaos and sometimes that gets very tricky and we need to check our motivation all the time. Time, I think and that's something that we teach in the sexual health nursing course so it's about always bringing it back to that patient or that client isn't it? It is and I think some people may feel that that's a barrier but if we flip that and think okay this is an opportunity that we are going to actually look at this person what is going on in their life how can we support them mm. through whatever the chaos is mm. so there's an opportunity there to build on your relationship to establish rapport with that client mm. and when we talk about for me as a GP I have the luxury of saying can I make an appointment with you at the end of the week or next week and so build on that relationship so that we can work through mm. the barriers mm. and create opportunities. Mm. And really that's turning the historical narrative on its head really, isn't it, mm. for Aboriginal people mm. who were with those Aboriginal people you mentioned in the past that were taken to an island and had no choice in their reproductive rights. So choice is absolutely prime here. Number yeah. one, best choice without putting that patient at risk. 
So Bianca, getting to your experience with working with people in remote communities, I've lived in a remote community myself and I'm guessing that language could be an issue here as well in terms of getting consent and consenting people properly in terms of language in remote communities. Have you got anything to add to that? Absolutely. So I guess it's important to keep in mind that quite often, particularly when you're talking about very remote communities, you might be working with clients for whom English is a second, third, not unheard of for it to be a fourth or fifth language that someone speaks. So I guess being conscious of that and avoiding jargon and and unnecessary medical language is important. But also when seeking informed consent from a client, it can also be useful if someone has access to using the services of interpreters or health workers in the community who may be able to serve as an interpreter as well. And that's something that I know we've all done. So Bianca, you educate health workers and Carly and I work with Aboriginal health workers and that absolutely adds to the practice and that really is the key, isn't it? They're invaluable. They're mm-hmm. the cultural link that clinics are often missing. And I would encourage any clinic who's working in an area where there is a large Aboriginal population to think about employing an Aboriginal health worker mm-hmm. because we know that Aboriginal health is not just about disease. It's about their spirit, culture, community, family. It's a holistic approach. And so that's where the health worker can make a connect and bring some understanding, some cultural context to, mm-hmm. to the situation. Aboriginal people also can be very very visual. And so looking at how you are providing a client with information is really important. And having lots of different ways of talking about contraception, there are lots of different models you can use, showing them what the device looks like, showing them a drawing. I'm the worst artist in the world, but, you know, sitting down and drawing and having a a visual cue is another way, an important way of getting information across. So do you find when you're talking to Aboriginal women about contraception, do you find that there is a reluctance or it's a conversation that people find difficult? It depends. As Bianca said, there is this concept of shame and particularly I find in some teenagers when you're talking about contraception and sexual health, there could be that shame job element to it. But I think it's also how we are responding as clinicians. If we have concerns around our own cultural competence and that impacts on our ability to talk about contraception, that's a huge thing. So a lot, I know a lot of clinicians are worried about saying something or doing something that's culturally inappropriate and so they don't want to go down that path just in case that happens. Mm. So it's about having an understanding of where our knowledge gaps are and putting in the research and the learning to try and increase our Mm. cultural knowledge and cultural understanding. So you know as clinicians if we have a knowledge gap in cardiology then we would go and do some research around that. So if people feel that they have knowledge gaps around Aboriginal culture I would encourage people to seek further information and further learning. Okay, and Bianca, when you're educating health workers, do you find this to be a sensitive topic? It can be, as Carly said. Certainly within in the 10 years that I've been working in Aboriginal sexual health, the conversation has shifted dramatically. Certainly there is not as much reluctance to talk about sexual health as there once was, which is really good. But it's also important to be aware of, not afraid of, but also aware of culture 
cultural sensitivities. And there are certainly some places where it would not be appropriate, for example, for a male practitioner to be discussing contraception, which would fall fairly firmly into a women's business situation. So back to what Carly said about working from an, an informed place and working with community to improve the sexual health services is important. Yeah, because I think it's important to remember that obviously contraception is a sexual health topic, but the reason that we bring it up, it's not that we as practitioners don't want unplanned pregnancy, it's because we're providing a health service and that it is really best in terms of spacing of children, isn't it? In terms of health outcomes. I think the conversation can be shifted and framed as a returning of power and a returning of control to people in using contraception, giving them the power to uh, make decisions about their body and their fertility and when they want to have babies, not just, you know, and if they want to have babies as well. Um, So I think it's important that it's looked at from that perspective. And there are some health benefits to spacing out your pregnancies, not only for the baby, but for mum as well. And it's such a chaotic time that it's really important that mum feels safe and comfortable and supported not only through a pregnancy, but then afterwards. And part of that support is talking about, do you plan to have any more children? What's your future plans like? Mm. You know, just simple things and having an idea of what your patient wants. So I suppose what I'm trying to get to there is, yes, the health benefits. So it's not that we just want to talk about contraception because that's on our checklist. And I know that after working as a midwife in the hospital, it was on our checklist as the woman was in the postnatal unit. And it would be the last thing we'd talk about. And often that person was breastfeeding, extremely tired, and we would leave it up to the GP that they would say, I'm going to my GP in six weeks. And then we would tick that box and the GP can cope with that. But I suppose what I'm also trying to say there is that there's a good reason that Aboriginal health workers, doctors, nurses, midwives need to be talking about contraception because there are health benefits to spacing babies. We know that that's really a good thing to do. Bianca, you've been a consumer as well, haven't you, of this system? (laughs) I have. Yeah. Did you want to talk about your experience? Yeah, I think it ties into what you were sort of just talking about then in that after I had had my son and I came into contact over the next six weeks with quite a lot of health professionals, but I came out of that time with no lark, no contraception. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of missed opportunities in that time for that sort of opportunistic education that you were just talking about. Someone taking the time to say, hmm, um, you've just had a baby. Would you like to have another one? (laughs) Another one now? Would you like to have another one later? And if that topic had been broached in that way, it might have helped. But it does seem to me to have been a missed opportunity. Okay, so it is vitally important. But as we've talked about, do you think that with the historical influences that Carly was talking about before and that you yourself brought up, do you think that played in at all to your experiences when you had your baby? Potentially, and I can't say for sure, but at the same time, I think it's just a reminder for health workers to be conscious of the values that they bring to the work that they're doing around sexual health and how that influences the outcomes for Aboriginal people. 
Can I add my own story to that? I remember when I was 15, I went to my GP and I essentially asked for the pill in a roundabout way. So saying, um, I'm really worried about my acne and, you know, I wanted to go on the pill. But I wanted to go on the pill because I was sexually active. And my mum didn't know this is what I was talking about. And basically, I was refused. No. And no real questioning around, are you sexually active? Is that what you want? Is that why you're asking for the pill? Any education at all. And then consequently, at 16, I was pregnant. That was a missed opportunity then. And so we need to be conscious of that narrative. Why is that person coming in? Is there anything else happening in the background? Should I be worried about something else? So while we think, oh, it's just a script for the pill, there's so much more that could be Mm. behind it that we Mm. need to unpack and explore. And I know that my experience then when I was pregnant and I wasn't asked around contraceptions, it's similar to Bianca after my pregnancy there was a huge missed opportunity. And I think that they just assumed that because I was in medical school, I would somehow know that this is what I'm supposed to do. And subsequently, I was pregnant again 12 months later. You know, Aboriginal people can be anybody and work in any field. And so we need to make sure that we're targeting our conversation to their level. So we asked questions at GP selection and there was a question around a 43-year-old Aboriginal man who's having dialysis. I know this is not contraception, but what would you do? And her response was, well, it depends. He could be an Aboriginal surgeon or he could be someone who hadn't completed high school or primary school. So, of course, I would provide that person information that's targeted to them and their needs. So that's similar to Aboriginal women when we're talking about contraception, making sure we're targeting it appropriately. Absolutely. And I think that with what Bianca was saying about language, I suspect that that's something that a lot of people wouldn't even know, that they just wouldn't think that some Aboriginal people can speak many different languages, depending on the language that their parents spoke and aunties and grandmothers spoke and so similar. So knowing all of that, knowing what all of these barriers are, what do we need to do to move forward? I think we need to, so if I can speak from sort of a GP perspective, is one, I would encourage GPs to be more informed around Aboriginal health issues and Aboriginal culture, to not be afraid of it because Aboriginal people do not just attend Aboriginal medical services. 50% of Aboriginal people will go to non-Aboriginal medical services and you will see an Aboriginal person whether you realise it or not. Ensure that you have booked enough time with your Aboriginal patients, so always booking a double or appointment and I always encourage GPs to bulk bill Aboriginal clients so that finance doesn't become a barrier. And also, I think, utilising your Aboriginal medical services. So if you feel that there's a gap, talking to the patient around Aboriginal medical services and would they like to link in with them because there are a lot of services available. But the number one thing is for doctors in particular is to be aware of their own unconscious bias. So as a clinician, when somebody is walking through the room, we're all already thinking about things, looking at things, looking at their gait, looking at what they're wearing, all that sort of stuff. And we're making all these unconscious choices already. So we just need to be aware of that, particularly for when we're looking at Aboriginal women. Okay, thanks Carly. Bianca, have you got anything to add to that? 
I just think it's important for people to keep in mind that for contraceptive services to be effective, they, they have to sit within a culturally safe, responsive and holistic sexual health framework. And it can't just be, you know, a tack on to a consult or a box to tick. These conversations should be ongoing. We need to normalise conversations about sexual health to remove some of that shame and some of that stigma. And it goes along hand in hand with healthy relationships and sexually transmitted infections and those things that fall into, you know, comprehensive holistic sexual health approach. Yeah, and in my experience, once you push through those barriers, I find that the patients that I've seen are very relieved, in fact, that they have someone that they can come to and put all of that stuff out onto the table. And I think that that's exactly right. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful today to hear from you, Carly and Bianca, and for you to educate me as a non-Aboriginal health practitioner working with Aboriginal women and talking to them about contraception. I really value your input. Thank you very much. Sexual Health Matters is a podcast produced by Shine SA under funding by Country SA Primary Health Network. For more information about sexual health, please visit www.shinesa.org.au.